and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I'm joined by two people who also enjoy the wonder of nature, Tim McIntosh and Heidi White. <laughs> How's it going, y'all? We're doing great. I mean, I am. I don't know about Tim. I'm no. I'm doing wonderfully. <laughs> Wait, I missed the segue, David. Um, who also enjoyed the wonders of... Oh, because this is Mr. Stevens on his drive enjoying the many wonders of nature? No, because of the uh, hilarious uh, little interludes between uh, the 23-year-old Lord and Stevens, who they're, and the, the guy keeps telling him, ah, you also yeah. love you love nature. What a great thing about you. Right? Yes. Yes, yes. yes. Although I feel like now if I have I to explain it, it's probably not that, probably not that good. Um, so we are here. <laughs> we are here to discuss remains of the day. We're going to discuss what is this? This is, I guess, technically chapter three ish or part three or anyway. It's yeah, yeah. labeled day two morning. So while he's in Salisbury, Salisbury, um, <laughs> and uh, this is the section. If you are, if you've read the whole book, as turns out many of you did this is the section that is largely taken up by the conference that takes place at darlington hall uh, many years before and it is the section where all of this international political intrigue is being discussed and is introduced to the book and also it is the scene in which or the, the section in which stephen's father passes away and also it is the scene in which the relationship between miss kenton and Stevens comes to a head. So really what I'm saying is this is a chapter in which the con- the central core of the story is revealed. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So uh, I guess that's this week's episode. <laughs> I guess we covered, covered Thank enough. Thank you and good night. Yeah. Do, do, <laughs> did, what do you, after reading this section, did you, Tim, have you finished this whole book? Uh, no. I've seen the movie, but I've not read the last two chapters. Okay. So Heidi, you read the whole thing, right? No, I'm, I've not. I've, I'm just reading along with the podcast for no reason other than I just am like reveling in it and rereading it. And I just love it so much. So I have no idea what happens next. Okay. So I started thinking as I was reading this and I've read the book before, but I don't remember it. You know, I, I remember the broad strokes. I don't remember all the details. Uh, but I was thinking about what is this book about? <laughs> uh, because we're introduced to all this, you know, international intrigue, as I said. And, um, and then on some ways, the first section is sort of a reflection of, you know, the duties of a Butler. What makes a good Butler? It's about dignity. You've got this sort of, weird relationship between Kenton and Stevens. And so there's all these different, these different factors at play. And so I've been thinking about what, what is this book about? As I said, Tim, what do you think this book is about? I think that this book is about Mr. Stevens, uh, a choice that Mr. Stevens must navigate about his about who he is as a person uh, amid the fall of a world that provided him relatively easy answers about what a good person was and how that person ought to live their life 
Hmm. Hmm. Heidi, what do you think? Do you have anything to add so, to that? So, Curtis Falls. <laughs> right? <Yeah>. Mic drop. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you wanted to add to that. Heidi, do you have yeah. anything you want to add? Yeah. I I mean, I guess it's, it's probably what Tim said just in different words. I, I think if I was to guess what this book is about, I would say it's a journey of self-discovery for Mr. Stevens, some kind of internal odyssey that's reflected in the road trip um, that examines the fractures in his own soul and in a changing society. Mm. It's, David, it's what, a, is, what is this book about, David? Yeah. <laughs> I think you're both, I think you're both, I'm not, it was my silence taken as a disagreement. Um, no, 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 no. It's no, an enigma though. What, it's a mystery. It's a mystery wrapped in an enigma. <laughs> Right. <laughs> uh, um, no, no, no. I think you're. I think you're. I think you're right. I, I've been um, really intrigued by the way Ishiguro puts this story together, because the way I remember it is, I, re- I sort of remember it as, yeah, there's this sort of international politics going on. I remember very little about Kenton as a character, and so I've been intrigued by huh. the way he develops her. Um, and. and I, I mean, like I said, I don't remember a lot of the specifics because it's been, you know, a number of years since I've read it. Uh, but I think you're both right. And, I, and I, so I've been intrigued by the, the, the way he layering these different sorts of stories. Yeah. Like, I don't think you can look at it and go, this is one sort of archetypal tale, right? Because right. there's, there's these different motifs that he's drawing on. You've got, as you said, Heidi, you've got this sort of concept of an odyssey, right? Of this journey towards discovery. And he's looking back on his life, but that looking back on his life is clearly going to lead him somewhere forward. Uh, you know, as he goes forward in this journey and he looks back, that's going to take him to some sort of discovery is, is the idea that seems to be at play here. But then, you know, you also have sort of a lo- this novel of manners, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then you've got the sort of butler sort of British butler story. He was, he, you know, he was a big fan of Woodhouse and that inspired his, you know, turning Ishiguro was a big fan of Woodhouse that is. And it inspired him to turn to uh, a novel about a butler. Um, and then you got the political. So I just, I find it so interesting that he can string, string all these different uh, stories together yeah. and he's able to reveal um, in layers each of the different characters, you know, every time we meet a character, we learn something new about them. There's not wasted interactions or, or even wasted scenes really. Um, and it's not just to push the plot forward. I mean, the, the, uh, the international intrigue stuff does actually offer a bit of a plot point for us. So it doesn't feel like it's about nothingness plot wise. Right. Um, but I just love the way he's able to layer things together with so much subtlety. And, uh, that's not exactly answering what it's about, but, I think the way he's telling us what it's about uh, while being a slow burn and also uh, sort of uh, pointed at the same time is so nicely done. Does that make sense? Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes. I completely agree. One of the things that struck me in this week's reading that seems to me representative of Stevens is the exchange between he and Mrs. Kenton about the decorative Chinaman. Mm -hmm. Um, Stevens is approached by her and she's trying very gently to suggest to Mr. Stevens 
that his father, Mr. Stevens, is becoming derelict in his duties because he's old, because he's losing ability. And she wants him to look at how Mr. Stevens' father has misplaced this decorative Chinaman. And Mr. Stevens absolutely refuses. And it becomes this kind of psychological battle between he and Mrs. Kenton about whether or not he will even like look at the Chinaman. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it's so representative of Stevens. It's kind of his refusal to look mm-hmm. at what is happening in his world um, is in that scene stunning. It's, mm-hmm. and it's kind of, it's kind of frightening. And the way that the author does such a delightful job of revealing how obstinate this very, very mannerly, obedient, capable butler, how obstinately he resists looking at something that's so obvious, just made the whole plot now, throughout the remainder of the plot, I'm looking behind nooks and crannies to see what are the things that Stephen is just refusing to look at. Mm-hmm. And another example of it, when his father um, continues to grow ill and his father, oh my gosh, the scene when his father is on his deathbed, it, it's almost mm-hmm. worth reading because he says something twice and Mr. Stevens makes no acknowledgement of what Mr. Stevens Sr. says. Mm-hmm. Um, let me try to find it. I think it'd be worth reading. It is a heart-rending scene. Oh, my gosh. I believe that is on... 97. Well, okay. depending on the version, I think. For, for me, 97. I'm, I'm using the authoritative translation. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, 97. Yeah, actually, yeah, 97. Mine too. So Go I'm going to read it. Yep. Um, my father opened his eyes, turned his head a little on the pillow, and looked at me. I hope father is feeling better now, I said. He went on gazing at me for a moment, then asked, Everything in hand downstairs? The situation is rather volatile. It is just after six o'clock, so father can well imagine the atmosphere in the kitchen at this moment. An impatient look crossed father's brow. But is everything in hand, he said again. Yes, I dare say. You can rest assured on that. I am very glad father is feeling better. With some deliberation, he withdrew his arms from under the bedclothes and gazed tiredly at the backs of his hands. He continued to do this for some time. I'm glad father is feeling so much better, I said again eventually. Now, really, I must be getting back. As I say, the situation is rather volatile. He went on looking at his hands for a moment. Then he said slowly, and this is the, this is the line for me. And he said slowly, I hope I've been a good father to you. I laughed a little and said, I'm so glad you're feeling better now. I'm proud of you, a good son. I hope I've been a good father to you. I suppose I haven't. I'm afraid we're extremely busy now, so we can talk again in the morning. 
My father was still looking at his hands as though he were faintly irritated by them. I'm so glad you're feeling better now, I said again and took my leave. That is a brutal scene. And like you said, very, very revealing. Oh, my goodness. So, and it opens up all of these questions. First, why can Stevens not acknowledge Mm -hmm. what his father is trying to say to him in some way? I mean, he cannot even begin to acknowledge it. The other question is, what exactly has transpired between the two of them? I mean, the line... I, I suppose I haven't been or whatever, something like that mm-hmm. um, right. from the father. So what, what happened? Right. Right. Well, and I haven't, I haven't read the rest of the novels, so I don't know if that comes to light, but it seems, I mean, well, and he can't even speak directly to him. He keeps calling him father, mm-hmm. speaking to him in the third person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's very, there's, that's very revealing or, I mean, revealing to us, but obviously hiding to him, right? That's, that's a, that's a veil, a displacement of person. There's no I, thou relationship there. One thing I was thinking about is the way all these different relationships, these sort of conflicts mirror each other in this section. So we've got this scene that you're, that you just read to him. And as as you guys are talking about that, that he's, the father tries to have say something direct to him and he sort of indirectly speaks to him. And then on the other hand, you've got this relationship between Kenton and uh, Stevens and she literally, she literally won't speak to him. She says, mm-hmm. you have, she forces him to, to write notes to her. So she is, you know, <laughs> there's also a disconnect in the way that they're communicating, right? There's a yeah. this inability to treat each other or to communicate like, humans, you know, to communicate, uh, not just, you know, sort of charitably, but to have an understanding there to be able to be on the same wavelength, to be able to sort of communicate on the same level. And those two relationships mirror each other. But then there's also this conflict, you know, in that sort of culminating scene of the the conference, right? Where mm-hmm. the French, the, the British, the, you know, the, the, the Lord Darlington gets up and he gives a sort of rousing speech and everyone's, you know, applauding and then the frenchman gets up and he gives his sort of yeah uh, sort of counter speech to that and then the american gets up and he gives his sort of uh, semi drunken speech and th- there's a there's a level of directness uh in of con- in the, in the conflict there that is that is uh pretty um pretty distinctly different than what's going on downstairs or upstairs i guess so to speak um, right between Stevens and the relationships he's in, and the, the the conflict that's going on between these countries. Of course, that that conflict between these these well between the men, I mean, which is mirroring this sort of international conflicts that they're all working through. So, in some ways, they're speaking on behalf of large groups of people um, to other people who represent large groups of people. And uh-huh. There's this question of justice that's always hanging in the air, uh, and and mm-hmm. even says that that Lord Darlington is, you know, whatever he did, he did it for justice, right? Um, right. And in some ways, it feels like this question of justice is also hovering over Stephen's relationships with Kenton and with his father, right? Like, is the way that they're interacting with each other just um, any more than the ways that the these sort of these these important 
figures in international politics are inter- is that interaction just too you know there's the question of justice is the, the sort of big question in all these interactions but they're kind of in opposition to each other in terms of how they're working themselves out right but one thing that's common to both of them is this idea of proper decorum right britishness hmm. yeah right? like darlington is so concerned with this isn't fair play, right? This isn't the way that I was taught at Oxford to to treat a defeated foe, whether it's on the playing fields of Eton. um, Isn't that the famous quote? Um, This is how we beat Napoleon was on the playing fields of Eton, that, that, that there's a, there's a certain way a British person interacts with whether it is the housekeeper or the underbutler or main figures in international politics. And when those things are violated, that creates conflict. And, but the way that the British even handle conflict is so, and like what I find so fascinating about British manners, especially in this whole kind of this time period that we're talking about in these, these old fashioned, so to speak, kind of manners is just this, it's like it raises passive aggressiveness to this like oh my social <laughs> level, I, which I mean, who's to say that's that's maybe a, a a value judgment that we Americans who are so direct tend to have about this kind of behavior. But the way that Miss Kenton interacts, like it's kind of hilarious. It right? is. It's super. It's really funny. And then there's this pathos in it because nobody is saying what they really feel or what they really mean, but or they're still the getting their point across. Yeah, exactly. So that's why you know when Lord Darlington stands up and makes this speech at this dinner, everyone's like, "Oh, thank God, someone's actually saying something, <laughs> right?" Yeah. And it's just so powerful what he says, but there still is kind of this undercurrent of what this is building towards on the international stage, as you guys both pointed out. Well, and, and even in, um, I, I, you know, I, there's this, the, the stuff with, um, the, the guy's son, I can't remember his name is about right now for, is it, sorry. is it Cardinal? Is it Lewis? Yeah, yeah. Yes. It yes. Cardinal. David, David Cardinal or something like that. Yeah. So, um, the stuff Lewis with Cardinal. That's the best. <laughs> the star, yeah. The stuff with Cardinal is like, it's straight out of a Woodhouse novel, right? Like in, in a different yes. sort of, it would play out. If he was the main character in the story, he'd be Bertie Wooster having to figure <laughs> something out or, or his, or Bertie Wooster would be his friend, you know, and geez, he, he enlists Jeeves to do his dirty work for him. Right. Uh, right. But even there, that's an example of people not being able to communicate. Right. The both yes. the father and, and Darlington are both saying, we can't communicate this thing to this kid. Um, and, right. and we can't say the things that need to be said. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it's purely this, this stiff upper lipness or, or that's meant to be an expression of, of the disconnect between people after the war, that this, that after the war, what, it, what ultimately led to the, the sort of dissolution of, of the world was the inability to, to talk to one another in the way that you once had been able to. And I'm wondering if that's because of a lack of common ground, like what we're seeing in all these, um, in this international intrigue, you know, they're talking about that. They're not, people are kind of saying things like that. We're not speaking the same thing. We don't mean the same things by this, you know? And, um, the American says, Oh, it's a matter of temperament. Right. And Darlington says, I don't think it's a matter of temperament. I think temperament, I think it's something much bigger than that. And so I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if part of that is, 
this inability to identify the common ground by which that allows you to communicate with each other. And it's right. the, and the same things at play in you know in Stephen's own relationships as a sort of mirror, a microcosm of that um, a, a sort of on the, on an international level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. I think what you said is really important, particularly the inability or the either the inability to communicate or the lack of appropriateness of saying what you really mean at a given time, right? And but I'm curious about Miss Kenton here. So I, I'm I know that in the movie, I know in the film, she's played by Emma Thompson, right? Right? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I can, I, I'm kind of reading her in her voice as I'm, since I know that, although I haven't seen the film. So is she, are you all reading her? You know the story, but so maybe this is cheating and you can say, <laughs> I'm not going to answer this question, but is she in control here? Is this, oh. is she all playing some kind of master hands? Like she knows exactly what she's doing or is she another victim of the inability to communicate? I think the latter. Okay. I, I don't think that she's in control. And I think that she, yeah, she is like under the oppressive thumb of Stephen's inability to both communicate and to acknowledge. Okay. Mm-hmm. Do you um, see it differently, David? No, I don't think, I, I, I mean, I, maybe it's both, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I like maybe well I think maybe she's after some I mean she's certainly after some sort of control and in some ways she is certainly if she's trying to frustrate Stevens you know it's working you know if she's in some ways it seems as if she's just being petulant but on the other hand I think she's after a certain degree of respect and mm-hmm. she's sort of forcing him to uh either give that to her or you know, she's forcing sort of his hand to make a decision on how much respect she deserves. Um, but I don't know that I would say she's in, that that means that she's in control, you know? Um, yeah. I think that she comes across, I think she can both, I think she can both be, um, right in her, in her claims and in her desires to be respected and also be coming across in sort of a petulant way. Hmm. Like I think both of those things can be true. Like with our kids, right? Yeah. I mean, our kids can, they can, they can be right about the things that they're sort of, uh, well, I'll say, I'll use this term loosely, but demanding of us and mm-hmm. also go about doing that in the wrong way. And that's the, and as a parent, that's one of the hardest things to figure out. It's like my kid's throwing a fit. So I need to deal with that part, but is what is at the core of what they're needing from me true right Right. yeah it's kind of one of the big negotiations in any relationship i think that's what you're seeing these international men of intrigue trying to sort through well women too i should i should make sure that i uh you know reference those german dames that were there uh but um (laughs) dame is the right word right yeah Uh, well i don't know that seemed very spy novel to me maybe maybe a little (laughs) condescending as well um (laughs) Uh, but so I think part of the thing is that there's a way that something's communicated that maybe is, is not helpful or, Mm. but then there's also what's behind, you know, what's behind the way that's being communicated and the actual thing itself. And sometimes how do you, how do you separate 
the sort of artifice of the way something's being expressed and get to the thing that's actually at the bottom of what's being expressed and the thing that's being needed in that expression. Um, and like, that's right. where, that's where the ability to communicate really comes in, right? There's always something under the surface that's the more important thing than how it's being, that's than, than how it's being communicated. And as the person who's communicating, you have to find a way to navigate that and make the two work together. Right. right. Yeah. Right. I, I want to say in, no, in the wake of this um, inability to communicate or the constant sort of like indirection comes the American. Right. The brash driving um, ungentlemanly realpolitik American. And I think it's worth reading his speech at the conclusion of the dinner because I think it says so much about what has been happening the whole weekend at Lord Darlington's and what is going to happen in the future of the 20th and in like into the 21st century. So um, Lewis stands up after I think most of this, almost all of the speeches have been given except for Lord Darlington, I think speaks again. Mm-hmm. Um, so Lewis stands up and he says, uh, let me see where to start. So I'm on page 102. Mm-hmm. Mr. Lewis came to a halt for a moment and seemed at a loss for how he should go on. Eventually he smiled again and said, as I say, I'm not going to waste my time on our French friend over there. But as it happens, I do have something to say. Now we're all being so frank, I'll be frank too. You gentlemen here, forgive me, but you are just a bunch of naive dreamers. And if you didn't insist on meddling in large affairs that affect the globe, you would actually be charming. Let's take our good host here. What is he? He is a gentleman. No one here I trust would care to disagree. A classic English gentleman. Decent, honest, well-meaning, but his lordship here is an amateur. He paused for the word and and looked around the table. He is an amateur. And international affairs today are no longer for gentlemen amateurs. The sooner you here in Europe realize that, the better. All you decent, well-meaning gentlemen, let me ask you, Have you any idea what sort of place the world is becoming all around you? The days when you could act out of your noble instincts are over, except, of course, here in Europe don't seem to know it. Gentlemen Mm. like our good host here still believe it's their business to meddle in matters they don't understand. So much hogwash has been spoken here over the last two days. Well-meaning, naive hogwash. Mm. You here in Europe need professionals to run your affairs and if you don't realize that soon, you're headed for disaster. A toast, gentlemen. Let me make a toast to professionalism. Could be Stephen speaking. Hmm. It could oh, be Stephen's in, in, in the section we read for last week. And even in the early in this section, he talks about professionalism and his father and all that kind of stuff. And how they're trying to be so professional. I, when, I, for when I read this section, um, I'm so glad you read that, Tim. Because when I read this section... And then uh, Lord Darlington responds to him, the sort of uh, old-fashionedness in me. It's like, yeah, you tell yes. him, Darlington. You tell him. Yeah, right? yeah. And then, and then I thought about it, and you were reading it there. And I kind of think that the only person who actually sees it how it really is is actually Lewis. Like, I think he actually... Right. He, right. He, what, what, Because what Darlington does is he doesn't actually respond to what Lewis says. 
he says, well, I don't think you mean, I don't think you know, you're, you're talking about amateurism. And he says, but what we're talking about is something different. You know, he says, I think you don't understand that. And really basically he doesn't respond to what Lewis says because Lewis is Uh not, Lewis is not actually wrong. I mean, maybe you could take, make the case that professionalism is the need for professionalism that Lewis is claiming is not really actually accurate, but what it goes back to this inability to communicate because Darlington then, as I said, he doesn't actually respond to any of the claims that Lewis is making. He doesn't address Lewis's concerns in any way, shape or form. He just sort of refers yeah. back to not wrongly. He refers back to Britishness, Britishness yeah. and, and virtues yeah. and things like that. And those are not mm-hmm. the wrong things to be consumed by or to care about or to want to preserve in any, you know, that those are not the wrong things to preserve, but they're also not what Lewis is talking about. Right. Right. And, I mean, what does it say that we know that who now sits in um, Darlington's chair? When the book opens, <laughs> Lord Darlington is no longer the Lord of Darlington Hall. It's, it's Mr. American. Lewis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the American. And so there's this sort of... Um, the American comes across as this sort of Oh, uh, what's the right word? He's he's kind of a barbarian, you yeah, know. He's, he's kind utilitarian. of utilitarian. He's everything. Yes, exactly. Stand up against, right? Absolutely. He's, yes. And and he is now the lord of the manor. Mm-hmm. Which, well, no, it's not. It's a different. It's not the same guy. Just oh, isn't it? Faraday is the name of the. Oh, that's right. So I'm yeah. so so. I still just, American though. I've he's just still conflated, American. Um. The, a character. I've just conflated the movie on top of the book, or, or overlaid the movie on top of the book, because in the in the movie, Christopher Reeves plays uh, the American Lewis, and he is the one who takes over Darlington Hall. Oh, I see. That's yeah. That seems good, though. Like, it, I mean, that's a good move for a film. But yeah, a good move anyway. for a film. Yeah, but regardless, it's an yeah. American yeah. who yeah. is now in yeah. charge. I just wanted to make sure that people who are reading, listening were not getting confused by that, but yeah, thank you. Right. But that, and I think that that speaks to the, I mean, just the, the delicacy, the brilliance of the, of the world that this novel is weaving here. Right. Because that is, it is the American, uh, international dominance, that particular kind of utilitarian, pragmatic realpolitik, as you point out, that is what emerges as world dominant in in world dominance after World War II, which we're, we haven't yet reached here in the story because uh-huh. we're between the wars, right? So uh-huh. but so so everything that's happening is at a very personal level and then it is also playing out in a public level too. So there's these and I'm not saying it's an allegory. Because it's not, but right. it there is, as you point out, kind of this overlay of multiple layers of meaning. There's the public sphere, there's the private sphere, and they're all populated by these characters that play out on the international stage as well as the internal world of each mm. character. Mm. It's really just a incredibly beautiful. Now I love this book. I can't believe I've never read this before. I just, everything, every page is brilliant. I think. Mm. And, and isn't it hard? Yes. It's, it's so hard to like stop reading. 
Yeah. Well, and it's sad. Like it's, I just, you know, I am an American. And so read this and I think, just say what you mean. It is, uh-huh. you know, remember wow, they, that little scene when they, when Miss Kenton and Mr. Stevens, when they meet in the back hallway and it's dark and shadowy there and, and he can't say anything to her. Right? He can't speak. He has nothing to say. And she gets mad at him and snippy at him for it. But yes, really, yes. I just picture him just like falling for her and he doesn't know what to say. He just wants to talk to her. And so he says the same thing he said before and she takes it personally and she's offended. Like there's just these, they keep missing each other. All the yeah. characters have, as David said, the inability to communicate. So they just miss each other all the time. And there, there's just like this loneliness that populates this novel in the negative space of what's left unsaid. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The negative space of what's left unsaid is good. Hey, uh, let's take a quick break. I've got to say a quick word from some friends of ours. Uh, I think you both are familiar with our friends over at the Classic Learning Test. They're a classically based alternative to the SAT and the ACT. Every time I say that, I want to say SCT, like conflate between (laughs) SAT and ACT, which I might as well, you know, for the purposes of this anyway. But, uh, So the classic learning test is the fastest growing college entrance exam in America today. More than 130 colleges now accept the CLT and many of these colleges have endorsed it as their preferred college admissions test. Students benefit from same day results, which if you remember taking the SAT or the ACT, you know how great that is. And you can share them with colleges at no additional charge. To learn more or to register, you can visit cltexam.com. And you can also listen to an interview that Brian Phillips did over on The Commons with founder Jeremy Tate back in December. I believe that was an episode that was on December 28th. So that's on The Commons if you'd like to, uh, if you'd like to hear more about what they're doing over there. But they are uh, presenting this episode of Close Reads. So I want to say thank you to them for that. And uh, if they're doing a great work and uh, a really important work, I think. And we're grateful to be, being part, to be partnering with them on a number of things uh, in 2019. So again, that's cltexam.com. Okay. David, could I piggyback and just kind of... Um, on the conversation that we were just having. Yeah, of course. It, <laughs> I'm just thinking about our author. Our author is a British Japanese. And I think it's really interesting that um, Japanese culture after World War II went through a, a westernizing process. Their economy went through a westernizing process. <clears throat> and I wonder if... The, I, I know so little. I'm so ill-formed on Japanese history, but I just wonder if what we, how do I say this? Great Britain starts to really change and the complaints and, and the things that Lewis says at the conclusion of the conference, Great Britain's moving in that direction. They start becoming more pragmatic, utilitarian with regards to um, kind of like the new political landscape they're all living in. And Japan does something similar um, just to, to keep up with the world economy and the military, military affairs of the rest of the world. Japan had to change. So I, I wonder if our author has kind of seen this story play out in Japan 
And now he is kind of like turning toward where he now lives, Great Britain, and kind of retelling the same story of what happened in Japan um, through kind of British eyes. Hmm. You know, what's interesting about, about what you're mentioning there is, so Ishiguro, he moved to, to England when he was five years old in 1959. Huh. So he, he spent most of his life in, uh, in England, in, I believe, I believe it was in Surrey. Uh, or, or at least that's where, I think that's where he was when he was a kid. I, I don't know where he lives now or anything like that. He, he studied at the University of Kent and Canterbury and so forth. But his parents, or he was born rather in Nagasaki in 1954. And mm. his parents, I, I presume were, you know, from that area. And at any rate, were living in, you know, one of the two cities to have had the atomic bomb dropped on them in 1954. Oh, wow. So wow. the, the, the impact that something like that must have had on the world and the, the his family, you know, the, the sort of consciousness that he yes. grew up in had to have been pretty profound. Um, and so that had to have been, uh, informed the things that he's thinking about here in the story. And I don't, I don't know that he has, yeah. I've done, I've done, I've read a lot of interviews with him and things like that. And I don't know that he has, I don't remember anyway, um, him talking about that particularly, but how could it not at least inform the consciousness, as I put it, the, the, the sort of yeah. mental space that you, that you grow up in. Right. And in particular, right. and how you interact with, how you interact with a changing world. Um, mm-hmm. that those, those, those two bombs being dropped kind of being, I mean, being the ultimate world changer, not just for the, certainly for the places, I don't mean to belittle, to, 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 you know, understate the amount that that impacted those places, but it impacted the way the whole world perceived itself from that moment on, mm-hmm. you know, right. whether, whether you were the country that did that or, or the country that had it dropped on you, you know, I, I don't, I don't, again, I'm kind of uh, careful about how I say that because I don't want to diminish what Hiroshima and Nagasaki went through, but the, you know, those are sort of world changing things. And to be at the very center of that, to come from the very center of that had to have informed what he was saying. I just rambled on again. I think what you're saying is so important and that I, I think you've put your finger on a lot of what is so fascinating to the modern reader or viewer about this idea of the culture change that took place specifically in Britain as a result of the the two world wars. Mm. Because, you know, that, that Eliot poem when he says, how, how will the world end with a bang or with a whimper? Mm -hmm. Right. So you have these hierarchical societies that were in many ways doomed by the enlightenment and modernity as it kind of encroaches upon the world. But it is in Britain specifically that ends with a whimper. Whereas so many of the other cultures that were world powers built on this kind of decorum, hierarchical, traditional society that ended with the bang. So you have... It's from the hall then, by the way. Yes, it is. Yes. So that... in, In... in Russia, it, it ended with the Bolsheviks. Like that was a bang on the world mm-hmm, state. Mm-hmm, right. What you're discussing about, what you're describing in Nagasaki, like that, that was a mm-hmm, bang. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. But at France with the French Revolution, the earliest of all, bang. But then you have British society that just kind of 
changes. There's these yep. fault lines, these fractures, these cracks in which over the course of world history that it just declines. And you have people that don't have to deal with the apocalypse, but they still have to deal with the dying of their world. Yeah. Over time. And that's why, you know, that's why Downton from Downton Abbey to Remains of the Day, that's why people still want to read Jane Austen. I mean, she's brilliant in her own right, but this idea of the manners of this society that that wasn't destroyed by violence, but just kind of faded into the wasteland. Yeah. That I think has a lot to do with the appeal and the pathos of these novels and these stories. Heidi, it's such a great point. It's such a great point. I, I, I'm, I'm giving a lecture at Gutenberg where I used to teach in a couple of weeks. And I've been, and, they, and it's on literature, and they kind of gave me a wide berth. And I, as I'm starting to prepare, I've thought how many of the books that we have read on close reads are stories of the decay of civilization. Mm-hmm. It's almost, I'm going to argue, it's maybe the metaphor of 20th and 21st century literature. I totally agree is, with that. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. And the difference between the kind of literature of manners that we see in this book, Remains of the Day, is such, um, for me, it feels so immediate and poignant. Mm-hmm. Like, even though I don't know the world that Stevens lived in, I know the decay that he is experiencing. Whereas I love Jane Austen, but when I read Jane Austen, it feels like a fairy tale because mm-hmm. the world that she grew up in was intact. The manners that she practiced were like widely, both widely esteemed and esteemed enough to be practiced. I'm not going to claim universally, but with near universal, in near universal practice, but it's not the world that we live in anymore. And so there's this big gap between us and Jane Austen, even though because she's such a master, we can still recognize the characters Mm -hmm. and we can still name the characters as true. Um, But there's something about the the way that they navigate that world. I know that it used to be true. It's a part of real history, but it's so alien to the world that we live in now that feels more like fantasy or fairy tale. Now, I, I want to like clarify this. Tim, are you claiming that Jane Austen is writing fairy tales? No, nothing even <laughs> like that. I'm just saying like it's sort of registers from someone who doesn't live in the world that she lived in as something like fairy tale registers. Right. Well, to add to what you're saying, I completely agree what you said about remains of the day is I feel like I could be in this novel. Like I know how this feels Whereas with Jane Austen. It's almost like being a voyeur into another, like an alien society. Like I'm so enveloped by the strangeness of it. Perfect. Right. Yeah. But whereas this is, I recognize, I read this with recognition. Hmm. Even Shakespeare going back to Shakespeare and Shakespeare is even more difficult because the language is so elevated, but that world is a world that I don't know. Man, I know the characters, though. I mean, I think this is like his, maybe his greatest gift aside from the language is his ability to paint, to like really 
capture three-dimensional characters. But the world that that Coriolanus was in, the world of Henry V, man, it's just not the world that I grew up in. Hmm. Right. And I think and I think Austin's the same boat. But something changes. And I if, I think it began to change before World War One, but I think in literature it begins to really register after in literature after World War One. But this is what Lewis is trying to say, right? Yes. He's trying yes. to point out to them that you're not seeing, you're not quite to right. where you are actually. I, and I think, I don't think it's that they don't see it. I think that they're not willing to admit it yet. Because he says to them, all you decent, well-meaning gentlemen, let me ask you, have you any idea what sort of place the world is becoming all around you? And the answer is, well, we feel it, but we don't know it, right? I think that's kind of what they're getting at is like when they're trying to yeah. bring justice to Germany, they're saying the world has been fractured, but we think we can fix it. And he's saying, no, the things that used to fix it don't work anymore because we don't speak the same language anymore. We're not talking about the same things anymore. And so then, then that's where, you know, uh, Darlington talks about honor. He's like honor essentially can fix this. But the problem is that that's not a way of speaking about things anymore that, 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 right. that people can communicate with. Right. right. Well, and, and I don't know this. I might sound like an idiot right here with what I'm about to say. But to your point, David, if that isn't how the world is working anymore, and there's this great evil in Germany that that Lord Darlington's honor is oriented towards, I'm wondering if he's going, if these people or if he specifically is going to get sucked into that out of his pursuit of honor. Yeah. They're going and undercutting his claim of honor because that's just not how the world works anymore. So I don't know if that's happening. I don't know if anything's building towards that, but that would be a pretty brilliant move on a novelist's part. To the brilliance of Isha Girl, I, th- yeah. I think that one of the things that he does is he tiptoes this line where he he doesn't make it that that Lewis is totally right or that Darling's totally right, because in the end, you know, the, the fact of the matter is there were major issues with the Treaty of Versailles, right? There were things of that course. ruined Europe permanently and that right. not just because of the war but because of the ramifications of the treaty in particularly in germany and that you know that's something that's a little close to me because my grandmother grew up in germany during those years mm-hmm. um and so our family has some sense of that but then it's also true that you, you know like darlington if he does get involved with things there there were a lot of people who got involved with things bad things for us, you know, the right reason, so to speak. And so Ishiguro doesn't manage to make us come across or doesn't manage to make it appear by a proxy that, that one or other of these things is totally right. At least not to this point. Yeah. I mean, I think you can, you, you'll be able to, you know, you'll be able to look back and say, yeah, Darlington got involved in things that were as Heidi put it evil, but it doesn't mean that his, his desire to be honorable was wrong. It makes it tragic. You know, it makes the results of that, the way the world set was set up is tragic. Not, you know, there's not some, yeah. doesn't, it doesn't mean that it was wrong for him to pursue honor, you know, not that part of it anyway. And I think that's that, that line that he manages to toe as an author is, is crucial to making, to making the novel work and to making our, uh, sympathies not feel, uh, um, improperly ordered. <laughs> right. Right, because it asks the question. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Yeah, go ahead, Tim. I, I think also in the way that the British, you mentioned rightly that Lord Darlington never addresses what Lewis says. You're all amateurs. 
You mm-hmm. need performance. You're not looking at the world. Likewise, Lewis doesn't address what the real issue is in Europe, the overtaxation of Germany, and it is crushing Germany. And it has now created this huge vacuum for a madman, like a total megalomaniac, to step in and fill. Yeah, what is it and professionals he, are going to actually solve? What's that? that? Are you getting at like what he doesn't actually, he says it needs professionalism, but he doesn't say what is it the professionals are actually going to solve. Like he doesn't have his exactly. sense of what's going to resolve. It doesn't, isn't tied to like empathy. And we get these little snippets from Darlington Hall that they're actually kind of like getting into the real issue, which is the allies after World War I absolutely cut out the heart of Germany. Um, hamstrung her militarily and economically. And so when Darlington is saying, you know, when you've got your enemy on the mat, he's 100% right. Yes. He's 100% right. That's yes. what like created the, the situation that gave rise to the Third Reich is that this megalomaniac could capitalize on what was happening in Germany, like this extreme this extreme um, humiliation on the world stage coupled with penalties right. that no one, that no country could really climb out of. And by the time it was the children and grandchildren of Germany who were having to pay the taxes, they're like, we didn't fight in the war. Why are we having to pay these taxes? So it's a situation just ripe for um, an absolute catastrophe of resentment. Right. Right. Well, and what's so wonderful about this novel is that that's played out in every scenario within the novel, right? This constant pressure of negative space on everybody, right? Down to the butler and the under butler. What is, what is Mr. Stephen Sr. supposed to do now? That's, you know, not, not just Germany who's been hamstrung, but also this very old man yeah. who has nowhere to go. Right, who is a hero to his son, and yet they have no relationship for unknown reasons, at least to me, unknown at this point in the novel. So there's there's these tensions and these pressures are on everybody. This po- this sense of powerlessness, yeah, and mm. the inability to communicate about it, and then of course because of, then there's no recourse, right? So then what is somebody like? Mr. Stevens, our protagonist, supposed to do, right? Does he, I mean, that's the question I, I keep coming back to. We talk about what's the conflict of the novel. In some, in some sense, it's like this, this society is so, so ordered and so structured. What do you do when you have no recourse? Do you just stay in the box that you're put on like a chess game, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the next space. That's true for every character in this novel. Darlington, Miss Kenton, Mr. Stevens Sr., Mr. Stevens Jr., even the young man who's about to get married, who, how's he going to consummate his marriage without someone telling him what to do, right? Like, so <laughs> this... Not totally um, clear. He doesn't actually know, but yeah. yeah. Right? Nobody knows if he knows or not. Again, because nobody's communicating. And yet there's... But, but on the other hand, the paradox of that is that this is just this beautifully well-run society. Everybody looks at the British society as this you know, wonderful example of culture. Of yeah. Yes. One and thing it's that just, not that it isn't. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, every 
culture has its, you know, it's not perfection. One thing that just occurred to me is that you mentioned the inability to consummate a marriage. It occurs to me that from the father's perspective and the godfather's perspective, uh, that if that, you know, you're not going to preserve a family name, right? You, without that knowledge, so to speak, um, you're not going to be able to, uh, pre- and, if you, and you're not going to be able to preserve the culture, right? So unless these things get passed on, and that's I think a, a brilliant little bit of humor that Ishiguro drops in there that it's taken right out of Woodhouse, but that also uh, speaks to something larger and much more complicated and much more tragic. You know, I mean, it's very funny and it's a nice bit of humor in a chapter that's pretty intense. Um, yeah. <clears throat> And add some levity to it, but but still, yeah. it still manages to speak to the larger themes at play here, which is why he's such a great novelist. I totally agree. And for the record, I think that he's such a liar, and he just didn't want to tell the the guy. He just wanted his servant to do it for him. That's. I just think he made it up. I don't think he was too busy. Any whatever it was that he said, I think it was. I probably just don't remember. Yeah, it was an excuse. He just he was uncomfortable Agreed. with it, so he handed uh, it to his butler. Totally. Yeah, because when you have butlers, that's what you you have you have the abilities to do stuff like that. Right. That's why, that's why you have butlers. You get them to do stuff you don't want to do. That's like the whole point. Right. Yep. <laughs> right. I would probably send my butler to do the same thing if I'm on it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you were ever asked to sp- explain things like that to very rich. I mean, I am asked to explain things thing. like that to young people. <laughs> I have had that conversation, but you, you it's my, not my relative I would have had my butler you do, do it. You have so. a counseling degree. <laughs> you studied psychology for all those years, just for exactly that, right? I know. I'm actually exaggerating. It's fine to do. I mean, it's it's not that bad of a conversation. It's well, how, how, bonding. <laughs> I imagine. So how many uh, times has this happened to you? <laughs> well, just twice. So, oh, okay. Wait, you're uh, serious, Heidi? I thought you were kidding around. No, you, I've, exp- I've, no, I've the had question, that conversation. I, I, meme. Yes. <laughs> I think, I think, Tim. I don't think she means complete strangers. That's the thing that we're trying to get yes. out of you. Like you've been asked to explain yes. this to complete strangers. Anyway, at the risk, I of, have done that twice. No, I have. What? Done. Oh, you actually meant okay, that? Without okay. using names, you've got to explain that situation, Heidi. I'm, I'm like just imagining you and a girlfriend like at the grocery store looking at avocados or something <laughs> and she says to you i've got a favor to ask you know what an avocado is just a big egg so maybe that's a <laughs> You're right maybe that's a little slip that you just gave so um the i have a single dad kind of friend acquaintance who asked me to have this conversation with his daughters his wife had died and so I did. I just uh, that makes about it yeah. And, that does make yeah. sense. That makes all the sense yeah. in the world. Um, but what a good, what a good dad! What a that's a what a great move. But to get to, I mean, I I haven't thought of this before. I didn't think of it while I was reading. But I wonder if as also along with being comic relief and David, you pointed out kind of the the passing on from one generation to another that theme of infertility. Right, that what what happens in the next generation if this generation doesn't fulfill its responsibility? That I think that that's there in the conversation, and I'm also wondering if it's just pointing to the to again that theme of the inability to communicate and how bonding it would be, you know, kind of the loss of that bond. But that's what a godfather does, 
right? Is have uncomfortable conversations that are hard that people actually just need to talk about yeah. at some point in their life. And if he abdicates that responsibility, that perpetuates the cycle to, from one generation to the next. So again, it becomes an objective relative of that particular uh, failure to communicate a about things that need, about the traditions that need to be passed from one generation to the next. The human things, the really human things. Mm. Okay, so we've been talking for an hour. So really? let's, wow. yeah, let's, I, we should probably start to kind of identify a couple of things we want to focus on here as we think about wrapping up this episode. I know the listeners would be happy. Well, Certain listeners probably would be happy if we went for another hour. Others probably would have probably turned us off by now anyway. So, <laughs> um, once we got to the, to the 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 idea that Heidi had to tell complete strangers that story, then that uh, they were like, oh, <laughs> "Did we derail at that point?" <laughs> we might need to turn this off. Um, <laughs> let's let's turn back to to the character of Stevens. Um, as we wrap this up here, um, I'm thinking, I've been thinking, you know, how do you mention this relationship between Kenton and Stevens way like 45 minutes ago? Um, and there's this concept that he's on his way to her right now. Um, and that in, it seems as if the, the journey to her is part of this odyssey of self-discovery. And as he's thinking back, that, sort of playing out. So I got to thinking, you know, are there, is there some kind of motif or something, some kind of literary role that she's seems to be supposed to be playing here? Not that I want to, you know, overanalyze it too much, but what do you, what do you think is going on with her character here, Heidi? Do you think that, um, you know, if it's, if it's some kind of a journey, she could be a siren, I suppose. (laughs) 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 um or like dido or something i guess um right yeah so that's a that's a really good question and i think that's what i was kind of reaching toward when i was saying do you do you guys interpret her as being kind of this voice of wisdom that that she um or is she just as kind of confused and fumbling around in the dark as the male characters because she's the only female character, like real character that we have so far. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's going to be that that's going to play a significant role in, in the novel um, that she's the only female character. So I, as I was reading, I couldn't quite without the context of the whole story, I couldn't quite mm-hmm. get a feel for it. Is she kind of a voice of wisdom and, or is she, kind of as lost and fumbling as they are, does she play the role of, of someone to be rescued or is she a rescuer of these lost people? Right. So that's, I don't I don't have a feeling about that yet, but I do know that she is the character that disrupts Mr. Stevens world. So she is the one that he, his, in fact, she's the one that triggers his only so far that we know of lack of professionalism when he tells her not mm. to call his father William. So that conversation, I think, is so significant. Huh. He, she, he, he tells her, don't you call my father 
William. You must call him Mr. Stevens, which is actually a divergence away from professional decorum. She's exactly right. Oh, she really? She's a position of authority in this. He's the under... Mr. Stevens Sr. is the under uh, butler. And so she should call him by his first name. He's taking it personally, basically. Yes. So, but which is a disruption of his professionalism. Mm-hmm. So this is when in this conflict of roles, he puts professionalism aside uh, for the sake of his own rigid internal hierarchy yeah. and to put her in her place, which is he sexist? Maybe, but I don't think that that's, I can see someone making that case, but I think it is more to do with the fact that she puts him on his back foot. I think that he, she's so disruptive to him because he's some, he's in love with her. Mm. Well, so he's trying to put her back in her place. I also think there's, I mean, there's also just the factor that there's something, some sort of, there's some sort of something going on between he and his father and there's something he's clinging to right yes he you know he the fact that he's clinging to a time when his father was capable of being a butler who who had been at one time in a position that she would have been subordinate to he's he's clinging to that past right and and uh he can't let that go and it's causing him to it's causing as you said him to drop the professionalism to not be as professional um and it's I think this this question of everyone kind of like trying to preserve something, but not just knowing how to do that in the face of it going away very quickly uh, is is really striking. And it's you know it's not just in the humor of this kid, but it's also in the pathos of his father dying and him not knowing how to to interact with the the sort of fading of his father's um, vitality. And then on, you know, mm-hmm. eventually him him passing away, and that seems to be a microcosm of those themes as well. And so in that his father's in that, in that she then is acting, she is bringing to the surface, I guess she's accentuating the fact that those things are fading away. And he, yes. even if he's not in love with her, which we'll see, he, he, um, he's responding, I think to that in a way he's having trouble with that. Yes. 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 That's exactly. I, I, she's very disruptive to him. And Which I think, there's only a handful of reasons why a young, attractive woman is disruptive to a man, right? Well, so there's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I can think of a lot of them, but um, the, there's also like I think there's a dissonance there in him probably because she yes. represents she is drawing attention to the fading not of of this person yeah. but also of this world, and also there's something appealing and attractive about her. And so within him, there's a dissonance that can't reconcile those two things. I, I think that ex- that's what we're seeing in the way he, he drops professionalism. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he picks the battle over his father, which I find very interesting, right? Because he has this very kind of strange idolatry that all has to do with professionalism with his father. But then the interpersonal reaction is so bereft of emotional connection with his father but and but he insists that she hold him to a degree that is outside of professional for her. Yeah. Hey Tim, I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you a question here as we start wrapping yeah. up because Heidi started her comments there at well or somewhere recently. She talked about she gave us she gave us a drop of knowledge where she talked about how um, Kenton was actually correct. So she had this 
shall we say, specialized knowledge about that world, right? Heidi did. Not yeah. Ken. I mean, Ken did as well, but in particular, I'm talking about Heidi's knowledge of that world. Um, and so I was thinking about how this, this book has a, there's a lot of history at play here and a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff that would show up in a social studies classroom. And yeah, uh, so I was wondering how you would, how you, to what degree you think this book has is best served with a lot of historical and cultural and social um, specialized knowledge. I mean, to what degree do you think that that's necessary to read this book? Well, Oh, I think, I think probably none at all though. I think knowledge of the, inter war period in Europe, if you've got some knowledge about that, I think that you would enjoy the book more. But I think that you could read it, I think you could read it with like not knowing really anything and still really enjoy it. If you, if you're capable of sort of making the imaginative mortar between the bricks of the, you know, plot points and characters, if you're good at creating kind of imaginative mortar, I think anybody would be fine without any real deep historical knowledge. I just want to say that you just created some excellent, you just stomped around in a bunch <laughs> of mud and straw and you just made the imaginative mortar by making that metaphor. Of <laughs> mortar. I like that. I like that metaphor of you, you, making the imaginative mortar to connect the, to connect the things. That's kind Tim of what happens with so poetry. good at metaphors. He's just so good at metaphors. He's Wait, so I'm good at metaphors? You are. You're good at, you know what you're good at? Metaphors and adjectives. You come up with the best adjectives. Like <laughs> like better ones than best. <laughs> right, or interesting. I, <laughs> right, exactly. It's not an adjective you don't when know, I say. You don't know this. Like, I am so touched right now because oh. I feel like I'm so... Because, like, metaphors are kind of my job. I write for a living and... Um, I am always beating myself up at how poor I am at metaphors. Huh. Maybe just because I have such a demand to create vivid ones, you know? Um, and I'm always just like hitting my head against the wall. You're so bad at this. So, <laughs> Heidi, if I pay for a half hour, could the two of you just talk about this on the air? <laughs> <laughs> have you, is there any sort of like professional training in like equipping a person for a heightened ability to create metaphors? Is that part of like, like 21st century therapeutic models? No, it would be, it would be me making you feel like you are already equipped to <laughs> produce metaphors. It's so great. It's so great. And it's probably, absolutely, it's probably true. It's a hundred percent true. And you are good at it, but I like that mortar analogy. I like it a lot. I think David's right. That's right on. I like metaphors about making metaphors. It's true. Well, and I agree. I think that that a little specialized knowledge wouldn't hurt. It hardly, I mean, it's never going to hurt to have it. Don't run from it. But yeah, sure, it, sure. It, this is not a novel that needs it because the this is there there is this interact, this personal interaction. Like the the things that are unsaid, you there I I think this novel, if I was to say anything about the specialized knowledge, it's not the, those kinds of details, but it is kind of keep your radar up about with the unreliable narrator thing. You really need to be looking for that negative space. Don't take his Stephen's word for it. Look for all yeah. the things that are not being said. Well, and also the things where he's like, 
Oh wait, no, I didn't say that then. I think I might have said that another time, or she didn't say that then. Yeah. I think that was. Dark. Right. I think that was someone yeah. else that said it. Right. Well, and I think hey. one of the ways that Ishiguro does that. I'm sorry, Tim. Is just no, that. Um, is the repetition of things that, for example, this, that I think this is brilliant on Shkro's part, they, how, how many times the issue of trivial problems, a series of small errors on the part of Mr. Stevens, our, our protagonist has come up over and over again, things that he dismisses as not a big deal. And in this section, we see that that's exactly what's hap- what happened to his father. And it was a big deal the whole time. Mm. Right. So those are the kinds of clues I'd say as readers look for in this novel. To um, follow with that, Heidi, someone on Facebook said, was mentioning how Stevens is an unreliable narrator. And I wrote on Facebook that I think most of the time we meet an unreliable narrator, he is deliberately um, deceiving us, the reader. I don't think that Stevens is being deliberate, but he is still unreliable, which is a little bit of a twist on what I think of as typical for a for a, an unreliable narrator that he's got something to hide, I think Stevens doesn't have something to hide. I think Stevens just cannot. He refuses to see. Right. He doesn't that, know yeah. himself. I like that. Yeah. 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 I I agree with that completely. Yeah. And I bet that's, that's true for me. If I was to tell you the story, I know, life, right. I'm right. sure I would be a completely unreliable narrator of my own story. Well, that's why we need novelists to tell them for that's, us. Yes. Yeah. So who wants to write the story of my life? And no, I'm just kidding. Mm-hmm. Probably nobody. <laughs> that would be a well, lot of laundry. Ishiguro. Call Ishiguro. See what he's up to. Yeah. What's the difference between what you do at home and what, what this butler does? I mean, it's basically the same thing. Yes. It might be more exciting, I honestly. I don't polish my silver. You're so. on podcasts and he's not. So yeah. You don't polish the silver. Yeah. Because you're because you're you have your servants do it. Is that I don't have silver. I just have <laughs> <laughs> I you don't have I silver, had. but you have servants. I do I, I have a small servant, short people. They're 12 and 9, and they do what I say. Oh yeah. <laughs> Your 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 little your your what did you call them? Your small people. Your small your short people do what you say. That's that's just weird. <laughs> my collection of short people do what I say. <laughs> uh, um, well, final thoughts from either of you. No, oh, I said mine. I said my final thoughts that I had written down. So you write down your final thoughts. Yeah, I always have a list because that question always takes me by surprise. Tim, if I pay you a ha- pay you for half an hour, would you be able to talk to her about why she does that for 30 minutes? <laughs> I would talk to Heidi about how she does have the ability to say a final thought without writing them. <laughs> is it fear, Heidi? Is it fear that you're going to look dumb? Well, no, because I just admitted it on the air, but I'm sure that yes. That's no, I mean, part if you didn't write but, them down, is it fear that you would look dumb if you didn't write them down ahead of time? Oh, well, that's a good question. I mean, you know what? I'm not paying. I'll, I'll tell you when I'm ready to pay you for half an hour of your time, David, and you can analyze me. Because if it is, you're probably <laughs> right. You, it's, you probably should write them down. Right? Um, Tim, do you, Tim do you, just kidding. Do you have any final thoughts? I mean, I have to say that. I, yeah, no. no I, you I would like 
during our next podcast um, to read some back and forth between Stevens and Mrs. Kenton that just show how much Ishiguro is a master of subtext. Mm-hmm. We haven't really talked about, we, we're, we just, you know, have all just kind of know how good he is at subtext, but mm-hmm. the little back and forth between Mrs. Kenton, you know, um, thanking Mr. Stevens for showing her the error of her ways. It's just bristling. It's just, it's warfare in the mm-hmm. most polite language you know, ever uttered by a 20th century novelist. So I think it might be fun to go back and forth in some of the subsequent chapters. Yeah, we should. Um, <clears throat> I, I was going to mention that Ishiguro is good at subtext. That popped into my head maybe like a half hour ago. And I think that that plays out even in the way that he is able to take the interactions in these, you know, sort of everyday relationships and make them mirror these bigger consequent, bigger, bigger world world level things that are going on. Um, yes. and so the, the interplay, I think the, the ability to put, to make those, those things mirror each other and in, in the interplay between those kinds of relationships, I think is where that subtext really comes out as well, which is what you're saying. Basically, those are, yeah. that's an example of that happening. Uh, yeah. But yeah, you're right. He is great at subtext. So good. I mean, just brilliant in some ways. I mean, I, I think Tim, you're right that we haven't directly talked about that, but I think just the last two conversations that we've had between the three of us on the air is all about that. Like, there is no way to talk about this novel without talking about all the things that are left yeah. unsaid, right? And how how does an author do that? I think is a really just a fascinating. How do we know, even though he's not saying that such and such is true? Uh-huh. Right. How do we read that and just know that? But just the craft of that uh-huh. is quite brilliant. Can a story still have subtext if the whole thing is subtext? Uh, well, I mean, that, that seems to be some of what's happening here. Um, but then it's at that point, subtext? is it just text? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, because we all... You know, we all we all look at that, for example, that lovely scene when she tries to bring him flowers and put it mm-hmm. into his room. Yeah. And, she, and, you know, she's bringing life and color there and he turns right. her away. Right? Like, there, that's the thing that's... Then from that moment on, you're like, well, obviously he's going to... He's not going to be able to see the gift that she could be to him. Right? The life and the color that she's bringing into this inner sanctum that is represented by this dark you know, small room where he does all his work. Yeah. So that, I mean, that is subtext to that symbolism, that's objective correlative, that's irony, that's, that's foreshadowing. That's all of, yes, that's all of that happening in this tiny little scene that is just, you know, it's maybe even half a page. So Mm. that is, I mean, that's brilliant writing and also very, very human experience that we can all relate to. And it is subtext because we all come to the same conclusion from that. So it's not just whatever you want to make of it. Like it's craft that's leading us towards the same conclusion. Most readers are going to come to the same conclusion or else completely miss it. Right. (laughs) You're right. But you can't interpret that any other way, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess 
Yeah, we could talk about this a long time. So let's just mm-hmm. uh, let's just put it off till next time. We'll, dot dot yeah, dot. We'll, yeah, exactly. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Insert yeah. an ellipsis. Make sure you put in, a bow on, on it. Make sure you insert the spaces in that ellipsis. Um, okay, I guess that's it. Once, <laughs> once again, you you had me thinking about things, and now I'm like, eh. We'll save that. I know. I know. I always feel like we have half a conversation, even when it's just, you know, an hour and a half of talking intensively about a chapter. How can that be? That's why we talked like six, six episodes, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Tim, you're good, right? Did you want to add anything else? I'm great. I'm great. Okay. Well, one more time, I want to say thanks to our friends over at Classic Learning Test. Um, Remember, they're a classically based alternative to the SAT and the ACT. fastest growing college entrance exam in America. If you want a, a better alternative, one that's based in classical texts and ideas, make sure you head over to cltexam.com. And remember, you can send, you can get those test scores same day and get them sent over to colleges at no additional charge. So again, cltexam.com and make sure you uh, check out Brian Phillips' interview with Jeremy Tate uh, back on December 28th. And that's on the Commons on Brian's podcast. If you want to learn more about that, that's a great episode. I've had some good feedback about their conversation. So uh, thanks to them for making this episode possible. Thanks to both Heidi White and Tim McIntosh for being on the show this week. I appreciate it, guys. Oh, thank you. This is so fun. Yeah, this is great. Thanks, David. Thanks, Heidi. Of course. For all of us here at the Cersei Institute and the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week and happy reading. Happy reading.